This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. It is my pleasure to introduce tonight's panel on the subject of California's drought and water policy. My name is Krishna Kumar, Director of RAND Labor and Population, which focuses on research and analysis to improve social and economic well-being around the world. Tim Quinn is the Executive Director of the Association of California Water Agencies, or ACWA, whose 450 members are responsible for about 90% of the water delivered in California. He worked on the Bay Delta Conservation Plan to protect species and provide regulatory assurance to water users. Prior to joining Aqua, Dr. Quinn served as Deputy General Manager of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. He began his career researching natural resources and environmental policy as a project manager at RAND. Paula Daniels is the founder of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council and a member of the California Water Commission. Ms. Daniels served as a senior advisor to Mayor Villaragosa on food policy and water. For six years, she served as a L.A. Public Works Commissioner. She was a commissioner for the California Coastal Commission and was a gubernatorial appointee to the California Bay Delta Authority Board. David Groves is a co-director of the RAND Water and Climate Resilience Center, a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation, as well as a professor at the Party RAND Graduate School. Dr. Grove specializes in improving the long-term planning and decision-making of natural resource agencies. Paul Wenger is the president of the California Farm Bureau Federation and a member of the American Farm Bureau Federation Board of Directors. He's a former president of the Stanislaus County Farm Bureau. His farming operations include the processing and marketing of almonds and walnuts through his woodnut company in Modesto. He has served on the Salida Volunteer Fire Department and the Stanislaus Land Trust. Our moderator for tonight's discussion is Molly Peterson, an environment correspondent at Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. Ms. Peterson has reported, edited, directed, and produced episodes for NPR shows including Day to Day and KQED's California Report. She reported for Living on Earth in the Gulf of Mexico after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. Prior to joining KPCC, she produced a nationally distributed radio documentary about New Orleans called Finding Solid Ground. We thought we'd start by talking about what California should be prepared to do if that Godzilla El Nino doesn't bail us out this winter and we're (laughs) faced with more of this historic drought. First of all, to start with this panel, does anyone here think that an El Nino is going to solve our problem? No. no. <laughs> Exciting no. policy debates. <laughs> Still await us in the coming minutes, but right a, a, now. A good yeah. El Nino would help near term, however. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it would. Yeah, so, so, I mean, an El Nino isn't going to reverse the drought tra- trajectory, but what is, is there one idea that you can think of that, that the state could take advantage of this El Nino? Well, Respond to just, it, just thinking about agriculture for where we farm, uh, a lot of the ground, especially if it's flat, it will help uh, for a lot of our areas in the Central Valley if we get uh, an El Nino year to help repercolate down into the underground aquifers and recharge those. But I think it will also show that if an El Nino is warmer and it means less snowpack, 70% of our water in California is dependent upon a very good snowpack. 
So if we even have high rainfall, we don't really have the water infrastructure to capture that. So we could still see some very big drought conditions. Um, Oroville and Shasta are rain fed, so it could help for those reservoirs, Folsom and some of our lower elevation reservoirs. But uh, we have a water infrastructure problem that uh, isn't going to help with El Nino uh, or extended drought. Yeah. Yeah. I... um one of the things that wasn't mentioned in my bio is that I was um, at the mayor's office. I was a, a public works commissioner um, with Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa, and the thing that I worked on most fervently for several years, um, and Tim Quinn's aware of this, was trying to capture stormwater. So we passed a low-impact development ordinance at the city of L.A., which would require um, new and redeveloped construction to capture most of the runoff from a, a big storm. So we got that underway, but uh, we didn't get as far as we could to be prepared for El Nino, because the El Nino is going to bring not as much uh, snowpack as Paul mentioned, but it will bring a lot of rain in such a shame that all that rain will just go right out into the ocean. So what um, cities are doing, and I was uh, stopped by a meeting today uh, with some folks from the um, Bureau of Sanitation at the city of LA, they are working to make sure they can capture more stormwater, but it does require unpaving land. It does require reconfiguring things. But one of the things the state's working on is to make sure that the regulations allow that this stormwater can be captured. So in the large municipal areas, like, say, golf courses or public parks, you could really start reconfiguring things so that you capture that water. So recapturing it and infiltrating it into the groundwater basins that we have in Southern California would be a really good way to make sure that water doesn't get wasted. Well, I was just going to say maybe maybe it's worth pointing out that it's not guaranteed that this El Nino will also be accompanied by tremendous amounts of rain where we need it. Um, if you look back historically, there were strong El Nino years that didn't actually end up producing a lot more uh, precipitation. So, you know, we have we will experience a strong El Nino, but how it will play out is still really uncertain. And, and I think that speaks to the need for, you know, the water management community to be flexible and to be prepared for whatever kinds of conditions come, whether it's a lot of wet, a lot of storms concentrated in southern California. Well, we're, you know, luckily lots of agencies have begun to put into works the, you know, the ability right. to capture that water or whether it's the water coming in Northern California and, and being able to uh, capture that if it's not falling as snow. Yeah. And just to be clear, I think everybody knows, but most of our water, a lot of our water comes from Northern California. So the water is where the people aren't necessarily, right? So it's being piped down through here. So that's why we're talking Although about one, local uh, capture. One yeah. of the scary scenarios is that gets reversed <clears throat> in the next uh, 12 months. Some of the El Nino forecasts are for a very wet Southern California. Uh, keep your umbrella cl- uh, close by, and a dry Northern California. Right. From a right. drought manager's perspective, right. from a state association perspective, that's a bad outcome. That's uh, not uh, how we're piped. It, 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 it's not yeah. how we're plumbed, and and politically, it makes it very. You know, the Southern California is going to want to forget there's a drought, and the folks up north uh, want it to be a statewide uh, effort. So. What I choose to do is not pay much attention to the experts on El Nino. Uh, <laughs> well, we've had them in the past. The, the, the only smart thing is to be ready if it doesn't come, right. to be ready for your six, seven, and eight. And so far, we have gotten by by regulating what we like to call ornamental uses of water. Mm-hmm. If your lawn is green, it should be it should be we like to call it golden. Mm-hmm. Take care of your trees, <laughs> but your lawn should be golden. Uh, there are things we've been doing to, to try and reduce ornamental uses of water because that doesn't hurt our economy. If it, if the drought continues in your six, seven, and eight, uh, you do have to start choosing which economic processes 
get water and which don't. We haven't really, in the agricultural world, it's been tougher. But in the urban economy, this is the fourth year of a millennial drought. And our urban economy is still going pretty strong, mm -hmm. largely because we were more ready for this than we get credit for. And local water agencies have spent $20 billion in the last 25 years to be ready for this drought. And they're protecting your interests. Uh, if, it goes and, if it goes and it does start to threaten urban economic uh, actions, my board of directors took a very strong policy position that we should raise the bar in California's water market. We should make water marketing much easier to do in the state of California. It's been a constant in my career. I was hired uh, 30 years ago, to, and water marketing was one of my primary responsibilities. Well, we're going to get to water marketing in just a second. But we were talking about this upcoming winter, and you actually pointed out just now, you were talking about flood risk. So what mm -hmm. is, you know, if we're not able to capture this rainfall, particularly in Southern California, put it in the ground, what are we prepared for in terms of floods around the state? <laughs> we have the ability we have the ability i mean this is california and you know we've heard a lot of things that uh you know we should utilize the australian model we have a group of regulators and legislators going to be going over looking at australia what they did to their 20-year drought reallocation of water rights um, and we keep hearing about how we should invoke other areas of the world and what they've done as a template we're california I think we set the precedent for anybody else in the world. And I don't think we should take a back seat to anybody. But sometimes we have gotten to such a place, and Mother Nature, um, the good Lord, however you want to call it, and I've been criticized for saying both, but some of my members. <laughs> um, but we have been able to get through. But we're 39 million people in California. We're still utilizing a water infrastructure that was designed for a much smaller population. Um, and we've got to do something about it, and we've got to buy by conserving water markets and other things that doesn't solve the problem. Then the near term, it helps you be able to adapt to a condition, but it didn't solve the long-term problem. The long-term problem is we need to figure out how to bank water in the ground and on the surface when we have plentiful water years and how to conserve it in the dry water years. By the way, I'd like to do a whole side story on the hostility that farmers have to being told what to do by Australia. Because everywhere I go, I was at the Palo Verde Irrigation District a couple weeks ago, yeah. and those guys were like, well, I don't want to hear anything Molly, about Australia. In, in Southern California, if, if, the, if we get a big water year, which we may with an El Nino condition, the water that's falling up in the mountains, they do a pretty good job slowing that down, yeah. getting it under the ground. Not all of it, but the vast majority mm -hmm. of it, they'll capture that water, they'll get it underground, it won't solve the problem, but it will help. You'll have a bigger problem with, and I'm not a flood manager, I'm a water manager, but the water that that falls on our, our growing cities in Southern California, the whole strategy now is to get that out to the Pacific Ocean so it mm -hmm. won't do us any good. It'll cause a lot of flood conditions, and one of the things we need to change in the future is this year we can't manage those uh, those flood flows, those storm outflows, uh, but, but as we move in the future, there's going to be increasing pressure to capture that water too yeah. uh, and put it to use. Well, I think this speaks, this raises an interesting point about how these kind of events like a protracted drought, a big El Nino year that leads to flooding, how that really moves the water management and policy over time. You know, every single drought we have, we, you know, people change their behaviors, they conserve more, you know, water agencies, you know, create new systems or make new deals. And then the drought, you know, when the drought subsides, a lot of that persists. And, and this drought is no different. The, the water, the way that the water system is going to be managed in the coming years is going to be fundamentally altered because of the experience of living through this drought. And I think that same, that same principle will apply to living through perhaps a very, very wet and catastrophically flooded or flooding uh, El Nino year. We're going to, you know, that's going to serve as, as a real catalyst for making sure that the next time 
we have these punctuated wet years, mm -hmm. the infrastructure's in place to make that really work to, you know, buffer us from the next dry period. And actually there was anticipation of this in the bond that was passed in the fall mm -hmm. because there's quite a bit of money set aside for emergency um, flood management and so forth, emergency management and flood management, and those that'll be released sooner. So See, it's not so bad. Probably, People did have answers. They thought about it. They definitely <laughs> thought about it. <laughs> well, something that we ta we're talking about, this fundamental shift that this drought is causing, uh, one of the things this drought has given us is the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, or SIGMA. For the first time, we're actually trying to do a better job of figuring out what we're putting into the ground and what we're pulling out of the ground. We've all heard stories about deepening wells, about um, rural areas relying on wells, about wells drying up. We're actually um, managing groundwater in a different way. Recent NASA studies indicate that in some parts of the San Joaquin Valley, land subsidence is occurring at this alarming rate um, because of this drought-induced groundwater pumping. Paula, I know you're on the California Water Commission um, what would it take to revisit this Groundwater <clears throat> Management Act, which is moving along at a pace that means that its real impacts are going to be felt potentially after this drought's over? What would it take mm -hmm. to revisit that act and accelerate its, its, what it's doing? You know, it's just gotten underway in terms of being implemented. And um, I think there's a question as to whether we should. Um, there's um, definitely a lot of work in organizing those areas where the ground basins are in critical overdraft. And the statistics are pretty frightening, as you mentioned, Molly, that the subsidence is at about a foot a year in some places. And when a groundwater basin subsides, it's generally irreversible because it's not like it's a pool that empties and then fills back up. It's, it's like marbles. A groundwater basin is like, you know, rocks. And when it's not able to, to take in that water anymore and it loses that capacity, it collapses in and of itself. So this is permanent irreversible damage. So it's, it's pretty significant. Um, they're working very hard. I think Tim has a lot of on-the-ground experience with um, how they're uh, going about trying to get organized. And in those areas of critical overdraft, they're supposed to have their organizational framework in place to manage this by 2020, which is five years away. So the question has been raised often, should we accelerate that? It would take um, the same. It would take a two-thirds vote of the legislature to make a change to that part of the bond package. So, whether that can happen or not, I'm not in the sure. Meantime, but in the, the meantime, stuff can happen. Things can happen, right? That Tim can. Well, and what's the important thing that can happen now, Tim? Well, look, this groundwater law was arguably the most controversial, most important piece of legislation passed in California on water for a century. Uh, it was a heavy lift. I don't think either Paul or I, who were up to our eyeballs in it in the legislature, are anxious to go back and renegotiate it now because we have a drought. Droughts happen in California. You want to be careful. Uh, so, so Aqua will generally resist any any thinking that we should go in and fundamentally redo segment. Uh, it's a good law that will guide our future, and, and it's not going to solve the problem in this drought no matter what you do. Uh, th that said, there are clearly pockets where there are urgent circumstances that we need to be addressing. So I think our preference would be let's find where those urgent places are. Largely, it's a subsidence thing. I know you're reading the newspaper that we're going to use up all of our groundwater tomorrow. There's vast <coughs> amounts of groundwater under. The, under, under the land surface in this state, and we're not going to be running out of it in the, in, in the next few days or few years or few decades. It is important that we manage it for the long term. Sigma puts us in that direction, but I think what I'm, I'm visiting my members in the San Joaquin Valley and saying, 
guys, you know, bad facts make for bad law. You got some mm-hmm. bad facts. Let's get on top of it. Mm-hmm. Let's get ahead of it. Let's figure out how to deal with these pockets where you do have very serious problems that need immediate attention. And let's 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 focus on them though as the isolated incidents that they are instead of of, of trying to renegotiate a statewide yeah. law. So there's areas where there's subsidence is one issue. The other area that you raised is um, wells running dry. So the city of East mm-hmm. Porterville, the wells are running dry. Uh, slightly, there's not slightly, but there's different ways to manage that. And in East Porterville, quite a bit of attention has been paid to that by the governor's office. Um, they had um, an effort uh, that was passed to consolidate water districts. So they're they're on wells. They're not part of a municipal water system. So now there's the ability to move them under the umbrella of a municipal water system. And it's a question now of the county um, and other actors in that area getting together to make sure that those folks mm-hmm. get water. Yeah, I, I yeah. think it's important not to understate the significance of, of Sigma and that, you know, this law changes some fundamental principles that, you know, it establishes the, the the fact that we need to begin to manage groundwater. It's not just take what you can and, and you know, we need to collect information about what's who's using what, how it's being used, develop models to understand, you know, how, how the groundwater is evolving. And, and this is a big change. I mean, this law brings about a lot of processes to collect better data so you, we can actually do a better job of helping, guiding how it's used and, and ensuring that it's managed sustainably. So I think it's important not to, to understate that, and, and that's going to be hugely important in the coming decades. I might make the statement, too, this isn't – subsidence isn't a new um, issue in California. We had subsidence in the Central Valley in the 40s and the 50s, and Pat Brown and uh, – John F. Kennedy helped develop the State Water Project with a lot of great engineers that we were talking about earlier that helped design the system, the State Water Project and the Central Valley uh, Project, and um, they brought water tables back up. They reintroduced (coughs) flood irrigation back onto some of those fields, and so what they did is they didn't have to use wells as much. And so when they went back to flood irrigation, which some people would say is not an efficient use of water, but that water went into the underground. It went into the bank. And so, and it's not going to be subject to evaporation. It's there. So when rains come to help replenish those underground aquifers, and after they started delivering water in the Central Valley, what happened? The aquifers came up. And today we have aquifers that are being depleted. We have aquifers that are being depleted at the same time that there is water that is falling in the north part of the state going out on the Golden Gate Bridge. And there's a problem that's creating, and I know you've heard about the tunnels and the, and the peripheral canal and all those things, but we have a very blunt instrument called the Endangered Species Act that tells water regulators they cannot utilize some of that water and get it where it needs to be because you have this very blunt, immovable instrument called the Endangered Species Act. Nobody wants to see species decline, but we're living in a 21st century tech, in a 21st uh, century here, and when it comes to management of species, we're using 17th century technology. Uh, we have to step them up. Well, water rate, I mean, so you're talking about this water, you know, with with grant, sustainable groundwater management, With we're talking a little bit about our water rights system in California. And water rights is inherently complicated, and it's a subject that I love very, very much. Um, so if anybody wants to ever talk about it, please come find me. But the very short version of what we're talking about here is you have a right, a water right is a license to look for water. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to get it in California. We're doing a better job with the sustainable ground Water Management Act of figuring out where that water is. We're also seeing changing relationships to 
wh- how we manage those rights, what we want to use that water mm-hmm. for, how we prioritize it. And that's what we're talking about. You, we were talking about um, using water as efficiently as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently did a story about water rights, and I met some Australians who are interested in creating a NASDAQ-style real-time water trading in California. And what they want to do is sort of improve and expand on the idea of water marketing and water trading in California. I know you've all kind of got some thoughts about this. Paul, what, what, are, your, what are your initial thoughts about how well water trading works now? Certainly farmers take advantage of it sometimes. Yep. Uh, many farmers do, and, and the water trade and the water markets are great, especially if you have growers who – have a water right, an established water right, um, a surface water right, uh, and they can't utilize or that crop that they're growing uh, is at such a price point that they isn't very profitable. And so if Metropolitan or somebody else wants to transfer that water, but we also have the linchpin of getting it through the pumps. But water markets and water trading are great, but that doesn't always mean that water from the north is going to find it to the available market in the south because you still have to get it through this system. But at the end of the day, if and we And get don't, approvals from the and, government and for your trade along the way. Yes. and But if we don't grow the pie, uh, that is just to fix a problem in time of need. If we're going to rely on water markets to say those who have the money have the water, then I don't think it's really good for the 39 million people who make their home in California soon to be uh, continue to grow because then those that have the money will be able to have the water. Water is very foundational. It's very foundational to life. It's very foundational to the food we produce. Far- folks say that farmers and I sometimes do get a little bit emo- not emotional about that, but maybe defensive when they say that farmers are utilizing the water. The water is growing the food that everybody else eats, and everything has a water component. It took more water to make that plastic bottle than that bottle holds. But we do have farmers and cities who are engaging in water transfers right yep. now who are both benefiting from it, both within yep. California system it's and within the Colorado system. Great short-term fix. Well, yeah. I, well short-term for water guys I, is 35 years. Well, I, I guess I think, uh, you know, maybe push it a little bit further. I mean, I think the nice thing about markets is it helps establish a value for, for a good and, and it helps facilitate win-win trades. People who want to buy something, people want to sell something. If you don't have a market, they can't make that deal. Now, water's immensely complicated and it's not as simple as, you know, me selling my water to you because there's, how do you get it there? And there's might be a lot of uses for it along the way and the fish might care if I take it away and sell it to you and such. And, and so it's very complicated. But that, but in principle, it really can not only just help solve a short-term allocation problem, like there's too much water here, let's try to move it there, but actually help shape how water is fundamentally used in California. And I think that kind of gets to some of the longer-term questions. You know, longer-term play out 20, 10, 20 years, this drought will come and go, but we'll be facing another drought. But fundamentally, at some point, we're, we're going to need to be doing things other than the ornamental water fixes of browning lawns. We're going to have to be fundamentally making hard choices about how do we use our water? How much food do we grow? How much, you know, what do we do for our ecosystems? And water markets can help identify how to allocate that water because it helps establish what it's really valued or how it's valued. I work for a very diverse board of directors. They have 36 board members. They represent the entire state of California. They're actually pretty good people and they work together pretty well. Um, and 30 years ago, 30 years ago, I was a young economist working at the Rand Corporation, not in this building. The building I worked in is gone. That's how you know you've been around a long time. You go to look at your old office, and it's not there it's anymore. A it's a parking lot underground. Um, but the, you have to manage it. You have to be careful about it. But the market is one of the few things that we can material improve our situation, given the inadequate infrastructure we're operating with 
today. So where my board of directors went, and it's, it's some, it's probably, I was a mar, I was a water market advocate. I, I got bit by this bug. Uh, the Rand Corporation did a, did a series of very influential studies. Uh, the date on them is 1978. They weren't actually published until 1980 or a little after that. Uh, and one of their recommendations 40 years ago was this state needs to do more mm-hmm. to manage, uh, the, the, to use the, the market to manage water. And I left Rand, went to work for the Metropolitan Water District, and, and became one of the advocates for water marketing in California, which did not make me a popular person. Uh, I mean, it, it was an idea. Nobody liked the idea uh, 30 years ago. There were no trade. There was no trading going on. We now have trading going on. Uh, it's, it's notable that my very diverse board of directors, which includes a lot of farmers and ag representatives, they went to this policy, a very strong pro-water market policy. You can go on our website, website and read it with no real dissension at all. That, that, that showed progress in California, but we still have a market with enormously high transactions costs. Mm-hmm. It's completely non-transparent. You have, to, you, know, you, you have to be as big as my former employer at the Metropolitan Water District to, to incur the transactions costs. And one of the places where my organization would like to go is, again, you get in trouble for saying we want to be like Australia in my world. Uh, but in the respect of finding mechanisms that have much lower transactions costs, much higher transparency, so you don't have to be the Metropolitan Water District to go to a computerized trading place and find a source of supply or offer a source <coughs> of supply. That's one of the things that I would like to see coming out of this drought. Mm-hmm. The way recycling and desalination came out of the last drought, mm-hmm. we need the market to take a big jump in this drought. And the other thing, by the way, is you need to use water outside differently in the future than you have in the past. That's, a, that's mm-hmm. another major change I'd like to see happening as a result of this. I might make one mention real quick. But don't forget about third-party impacts. And so we had a lot of rice growers that mm-hmm. sold their water and transferred it this year. They didn't need employees. They didn't buy fuel, so the local fuel distributor didn't have to lay off employees, and they didn't buy equipment, and they didn't buy other things. When you talk about rural California that is dependent upon, we are agrarian, we're dependent upon an agricultural base. What about all those other folks that are dependent upon agriculture? And now when agriculture isn't producing, you're not producing the almonds, the wine for the wine grapes, and everything else that everybody else creates jobs downstream from that, and those that helped you upstream to be able to get that crop, they're impacted. They didn't benefit from that water market. Only the farmer did. I mean, certainly we're seeing with this discussion, even this very brief discussion about water markets, <clears throat> the intense emotional nature of this discussion. It used to be that we had this north versus south discussion or, um, you know, red versus blue. But you really are seeing that this is an economic, this is the haves and the have-nots. And you see that with the um, the rich cities and the rich farms kind of allied in in kind of being more open to some of these discussions. It used to be north and south, and then it was east and west. Today, because of Sigma, it's neighbor versus neighbor. Hmm. Someone who has been pumping out of the ground and someone that hasn't. And if we don't get Sigma Well, we got right, that here in Southern California, too. Yeah. Yeah. We do. And, and, and actually, I want to turn our economic discussion to something a little bit more specific to uh, this area because we, we're also talking about the price of water for individual water districts here and how we price water to consumers to encourage uh, conservation. So we've had some discussion about tiered pricing, conservation pricing, where if you use more, you pay more. David, you've uh, written a lot about that. We've had some discussions about that this year. Um, what do you see about the viability of that? Well, I think we. I mean, this is this is a an approach that utilities use to encourage conservation that has now been you know challenged and in some co- some contexts is is not going to be allowed. And I think there's some questions um, 
you know, about how to how can a utility incentivize conservation if they don't have, you know, this tool to basically price, you know, high water users, you know, more for that, you know, their their uh, their their last use of wa- uh, unit of water. Um, so I don't, re- you know, I don't know exactly how this is going to play out, but I, I know that this is will make it tougher for utilities. I'm I'm sure Tim, you have some some. Well, actually, uh, Paula, or, I know Paula, oh, you've Paula. got some thoughts right. too about yeah. how this might. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to hear from I do want to hear from you because we've talked a little bit you and I about um, about how tiered water structures yeah. might affect um, poor um, folks and rural communities. So I think I think that uh, pricing incentives and disincentives on water is very important. And what uh, we're referring mm-hmm. to is that there was a case that said that uh, a, a, a district that tried to do it San Juan Capistrano didn't yeah. justify it well enough to to not have to get it through the fee regulatory process and get votes on it. But that could be distinguished because uh, one of the arguments uh, in the case was whether or not they justified it well enough, and, and other districts have done. So I think it's important to have um, clear market signals for water pricing. Tiered pricing, um, I think it's valuable and it's shown to be effective. Personally, I favor another approach, which is to be very precise about how our water is used and to use submeters to show what's indoor water and outdoor water. And this gets back to Tim uh, Quinn's point, which I agree with completely, is that ornamental water use, so it's not growing food, it's just simply growing something for aesthetic purposes, roses, which I have in my yard, or, you know, turf or whatever you might have. But that that ornamental use is 40% of our water use in most municipal areas, and it's an awful lot, right? So... What I favor is a submeter so that you know what's going into the house, what's going outside. And what I'd like to see eventually is you have different pricing for outdoor water use than indoors. So that would affect everybody more evenly, particularly lower-income communities that are in multiple family dwellings. Um, so then there's a different pricing for what you're using inside, and then you know that's what you actually need to live on. So if we could get to a point where we can do that, that'd be great. We just passed in the Water Commission a water-efficient landscape ordinance, which will require, going forward, that new landscaping have those submeters. So we can also start getting information and give you all feedback loops on how you're using the water. So that, but I think, But to be fair, well. it, sound, it sounds like this is an approach to more better target that tiered pricing in the way that, so you know, so that you're pricing indoor, you know, less discretionary water use. But you're not pricing use. on an on a, on a, an assumption of quantity. Do you see what I mean? So right. it's priced more precisely. Right. I can't so resist pointing out what you're suggesting, Paula. Could be a good idea. It's illegal under Proposition 218. But what he's right. talking about is that that issue that I just raised about and, and me, There's me, a lot of lawyers with a lot of business this year let, let, trying let, to figure let, out what's illegal under 218 because of this case. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll mention this because you might get a chance to vote on it in November 2016. That's exactly uh, why I bring it up. I, have, I think we ought to try and reform that. Have, you think? Say, I love that we're finishing on this before we ask um, for your questions. <laughs> I Look, I, I'm the local government guy. I represent 450 local public agencies who are very innovative, who have done remarkable things to change how they manage water. They don't like the state telling them what to do. And interestingly enough, one of the unintended consequences of this proposition was the state was telling them how to price their water. Uh, now, it didn't make increasing block rates. And some of my members very interested, about 60% of water agencies in the state, municipal water suppliers, they use some form of increasing block rate pricing structure. Uh, and, and that number grows by the day. Uh, some of my members want to stick with their uniform rates. I don't know how long they can hold on to them, but I'll defend their discretion to do that. But most of my membership really wants to get into in, in incentive-based pricing. And, and what this law did 
Well, it's called strict proportionality. Uh, you can establish increasing block rates, but you have to directly tie them to a cost that is incurred to meet that water use in the higher block rate. Now, we live in a world where we're consuming water that's got environmental consequences and all other things away from the consumption point, which means in public policy, you want a wedge between that price and the cost of service mm -hmm. uh, to, get, to get what an economist would regard as a future outcome. That is illegal under California today. You have to pass a strict proportionality has to do an increase in block rate pricing. And one of the things that I think my board, actually I'm going to ask them next week uh, whether they support this or not, uh, but I'm going to recommend to them that, 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 that we move forward and try to loosen some of those constraints so that conservation pricing, for those that want to do it, do and it a great many happen, do, yeah. mm -hmm. so that they can do it in ways they're not allowed to do under existing law. And you can Tim, see that they, oh, sorry. Well, I was going to say what Tim mentioned is it being illegal was just decided a little while ago by a court decision. So well, that court decision, uh, every single water lawyer I've talked to doesn't the, this idea up. that that there's some clear outcome of that case right. is not one that I would like you to be left with this right. evening, right. because right. the water right. lawyers are going to have a lot of business in the right. coming years figuring this out. And you can see that with this discussion about how to price water mm -hmm. um, at the urban, at the local level, um, the discussions about sigma and how we're going to put together groundwater, you know, the lawyers and the judges in the state of California are going to have a lot of business mm -hmm. figuring out what is reasonable and beneficial is one way to put it, under the state constitution, for how we're going to use water going forward. So um, we're going to have a final, final question for you guys. I want you to think about it while we, we're taking other questions. But right now I want you to um, be prepared because at the, to wrap up, I'm going to ask you for your biggest, bestest policy prescription, your 2040 and beyond policy prescription. So I'm giving you a little advance notice. I'm giving everyone in this room a little advance notice. And right now we're going to start um, taking questions. and have someone to help you with that. So I'm in, in the water district that required us to reduce our water intake by 73%. What water district are you in? District 36. I live in Topanga. 29. <laughs> 29. We live in Topanga. I have friends that live in Paso Robles that are on a well that grow grapes. They said, heaven for no one's going to tell us how to use our water. We're on a well. Can you address the disparity between people that are on a well and pass the robles and us that have to reduce our water by 73 percent. I'm not sure where the 73 percent comes from. Under the rules that have been passed by our State Water Resources Control Board, well, I'm, 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 I'm guessing it's locally driven. It's not state driven because the highest yeah. conservation requirement. It has to do with what they've decided your monthly allocation is. And 73% is your personal calculation, I'm guessing, for what the difference is between the previous and the present. As for the groundwater pumper in Paso Robles, he will soon be. He or she will soon be introduced to the sustainable groundwater management. <laughs> uh, and in point of fact, uh, his, it, it, it's, it's locally driven. It's not the state, but but we've incentivized the local to take charge of this as as a matter of local management. And 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 someone will be telling them uh, things about whether they can pump or not pump in in combination with other things. So, uh, I, and by the way, that's not the only pumper in California that has this attitude. This is why I have political bruises from last year that will probably never heal. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Most farmers think that the water underneath their ground is theirs. Right. They think it's a mineral right. They think that it's a gas right, and it's not. They say, that's my water. It's not their water. They have the right to utilize that groundwater for a beneficial use. Farming is a beneficial use. But again, under Sigma, you will have to utilize it and try to equalize the amount of water that's there and the availability. The only thing I could say is your water district has responsibility to make sure there's water that comes out of your tap. 
when their well drills dry, their land becomes valueless. So if they don't manage their groundwater right and they overpump it, um, they're going to find out that all of a sudden their grapes don't grow and their investment is now nil. One of the things that makes this discussion so complicated is that when we're talking about water, we're talking about it as a commodity, as a right, as a service, and we use all these terms interchangeably. And of course, that's not how it works out. So when you're in a political debate with someone, they could be talking about a service and you could be talking mm-hmm. about a right or vice versa. Yeah. It's, yeah. We've got a question here. Uh, a bulk of the uh, public policy debate seems to center around um, demand as opposed to supply. Uh, our economist understands that very well, I'm sure. The question I have is, why don't we increase the supply by additional desalinization? Well, we are. We are. <laughs> uh, yeah. In fact, one of the world's largest desalination plants is going to come online in a few months mm-hmm. in Carlsbad, uh, northern San Diego County. I have probably... 15 to 20 members on the coast that are interested in desalination. Uh, desalination is not a panacea. It will mm-hmm. not. It will never be more than a single-digit percentage of our overall state water supply. But in some localities, it can make a difference, and they will pursue it, and they will do it. The main thing I want to I want to get to is where where we need to go in the future is truly comprehensive decision-making, comprehensive mm-hmm. solutions. None of the desal won't save us. Conservation won't save us. The market won't save us. The governor's tunnels won't save us. If you start doing all of those things in a, con- in a, in, in a well-integrated, comprehensive package, we can be saved. And frankly, that's where, that's where my organization pushes this governor and previous governors to where that's where they are coming from, truly comprehensive solutions that go from how you're using water on your front lawn to building storage and conveyance solutions in Northern California, we have to check the box next to all of the above if we want to manage this situation in the future. And desalination is is, an, is part of that. Paula? I, I don't think I could say it better than Tim just did as an overall question, but I want to point out also that when we talk about increasing supply, what we're not quite taking into account is that we already have the water that we've been using well enough to live on. So particularly municipal areas, and where desal would generally serve municipal area because it's near the coast and it's the piping and all the pumping and so forth that would have to happen to make it work would be in a municipal area. But we have a huge amount of supply in the recycled water that we mm-hmm. could produce. So we already have yeah. 400 million gallons that are flowing through Hyperion right now that are being treated and going out into the ocean. So why do we do that? Because we haven't yet built the political will and the public will to recycle that and put it right back into our, our drinking water, which can be done. It's the same technology that desalination uses, and it uses less energy, has less environmental consequences to recycle our water. Metropolitan Water District just is getting another plant online for that. But I would say, let's focus on doing that before we figure out how to do, you know, desal, which could have a lot more dire consequences, actually. So, Thank you. All right, we've got a question here. It seems to me that nobody's talked about the real elephant in the room, which is the, uh, and I'm going to get the number wrong, so I apologize, I'm not good with numbers, 23 billion cubic feet of water going out to the ocean to keep salmon warm and smell warm. And at the end of the day, if you got the eighth largest economy in the world here and we need to feed people, what's the real story on that? I think the reference to the Endangered Species Act as a blunt instrument is, is a good one. I mean, what's going on with that? And I, I, I guess I'll address it to the Rand fellow. 
because hopefully he's as objective as anybody up there. <laughs> <laughs> and if he's if he's not, who's then not objective if right he's now? Not, then I'll, I'll talk to. Uh, Whatever the guy's name is, it runs Rand afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, no pressure on my answer here. Um, <laughs> well, as an objective Rand researcher, I think the thing, the, the thing to point out is that you're talking about important trade-offs in terms of how water is used in this state. And there is benefit and disbenefit to applying it and using it and having it um, be you know, used to support aquatic ecosystems, you know, that's water that can't be used to grow something or to be, uh, you know, consumed by uh, a re- you know, residence. Um, on the flip side, Californians val- value their environmental heritage. So the question is, where's the right balance? And what we try to getting back to Rand and where my objectivity comes in, what we try to do at Rand is not determine what that balance ought to be, but rather try to articulate how our decisions would influence that balance so that the people and the decision makers and 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 you're smiling so i'm curious what you're thinking but so the decision makers can you know have the debate about the trade-offs in a more informed fashion so i think yeah something interesting about the debate about um the endangered species act which is a robust federal debate is that it's also one that happens across the political spectrum So you see a movement away from individual species protection, even among people who agree that that is a law that's worth talking about. We didn't focus on it in this discussion because we were trying to focus on California law specifically. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that addresses your concerns, but I hope you got an answer from the Rand fellow. Good. It's, it's a California I, I Endangered Species though, Act that won't allow shafts to be raised on the right. cloud, and that's the State Endangered right. Species Act. While but, I want to say that I think it's not insignificant. It's it's not without consequence to ignore the consequences to the environment. So it's easy, I think, in this debate to think that fish are getting this water, whereas a lot of people need it, but it's really not that simple. The, the fact that the water is being asked to stay in the delta and looked at uh, to protect the species in the delta also protects the life of that whole delta ecosystem and the farmers that rely on it, the people that fish off of it as well. So there's other people who need that. But besides that, it just keeps the whole system healthy. If you let the system collapse, then it's not available to anybody, right? This is the tragedy of the commons, as they say. The public needs to take care of the public, what's available to the public. And if you don't manage that well, and that's part of what the Endangered Species Act is designed to protect, does it work well? There's, you know, questions about that. But it's designed to protect what belongs in that public realm that will keep all of it healthy so that we can survive. It's almost be like depleting our soil just to grow whatever you want to grow, but then the soil's gone. And Roosevelt said the test of every nation is how it cares for its soil. I would say the test of every nation is how it cares for its water and everything that thrives in that water as well. So well, it's, it's, Yeah, and as I'm sure you know, it's not just the Endangered Species Act. It's the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act that um, creates a lot of complexities in the far northern part of the state. Um, UC Davis Watershed Science has done a really good breakdown of all the different mandates, federal and state, and the reasons why they exist. I just want to give one more example of what happens when you let water go out of the rivers, which is part of what happens with uh, fish, the wildfires we're having right now, is because the rivers that, you know, keep the trees healthy are being depleted as well. So there's, it's just a whole connected system. Oh, we also, that's a great, and we could have another hour on that. We have more (laughs) trees, we have more trees in California today than ever in the history of California. 
because we have not allowed for selective harvest. We have we prevented fires until you have these catastrophic fires. Every one of those trees is sucking up water. Every one of those trees is sucking up water that used to get into a stream, an ephemeral stream, get down into a bigger stream and get into the system. Part of the problem we have is our poor forest management has allowed these forests to grow up. We've allowed them then to have catastrophic fires, but that is also part of our water supply system mm-hmm. and lack thereof because these trees are sucking up the water. I, I want to jump in here. We're not going to have a satisfactory answer for you because you've asked the $64,000 question. The $64,000 question for the 21st century, so maybe a $6.4 million question. Um, $6.4 we're, we're, billion, we're struggling. Right? We, we operate in 2009. We passed a law, which I strongly believe in personally and professionally, that says we're going to manage this system subject to what we call co-equal goals. The co-equal mm-hmm. goals means that the environment and the economy, water supply reliability, are both equally important. Nobody knows what that means yet. We're struggling <laughs> with it. It's a better debate to have than we've had before. But if you think about the, the, the history of managing this resource, for the, pretty much most of the 20, 20th century, we manage the resource for cheap water. And the environment be damned, and we did a lot of damage to the environment with that policy. And, and, and we paid a price for that starting in the 70s and 80s. The rules started to change, uh, and they needed to change, by the way. And I, I will weigh in and agree with, with Paul right now. Much of the decision-making is happening under the Endangered Species Act, which is not a co-equal goal statute. I mean, the system's run by biologists who don't place much weight on water supply reliability, and we get what we feel, and there will be a difference of opinion amongst the people on this panel, as not being very sound, efficient decisions. Okay, we want water for the environment. We need to use water for the environment. But we need some sort of efficiency notions about how that is happening, too. And we just don't have institutions right now that allow us to escape this uniform... We've got a law of co-equal goals, but everybody that's engaged under that law is a is a is a, is a single goal tender person, and we haven't figured out how to create com- competition in our political system that can give us co-equal goals. Uh, we're swinging the pendulum from waters first to environments first. We need to stop that pendulum in the middle because I strongly believe we want water going out to the bay uh, for environmental purposes. It's going to be really important for some species that sometimes, and we've got to put that into our thinking. We're just not doing very well with this co-equal goal balancing thing right now, and I, I think that's understandable. It's it's really new to us. I mean, we just came to the realization that that's that ought to be the founding principle of our legal structure in 2009, and here we are, six years later. We're really low on the learning curve of trying to figure out how do we make that work. Mm-hmm. We have another question over here. Yes. Thank you. Um, do a lot of work in the space, and I, 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 well, I'm listening to all of you, and and I know we have a lot to be appreciative for in California with our water management. We've done amazing, amazing things, so thank you all for helping out on that. What I'm hearing here is a very compartmentalized look at water, and I think it's harmful. Uh, you know, when I hear statements like, trees use water, so let's get rid of the trees, or let's get rid of species we don't like, what that says to me is, is we're not looking at things from a systems orientation. And, and if you look at the management of ecosystems, and Paula, you said some, some wonderful, wonderful things in, in why it's, it's absolutely essential that we do that. The, the, the thing that, that I want to ask you about tonight, though, is we've had a number of comments from, from the panel about the fact that we have a lot of water runoff issues in the state, which we do. And yet the biggest water sponge that we have at our disposal hasn't come up tonight. And what I'm talking about is is the soil and and the fact that 
that when you kill soil with chemicals and you kill the organization, the, the organisms in it, uh, it no longer retains water. And according to the UN and the FAO and the USDA, for every 1% of soil organic matter that we restore, every acre will retain up to 60,000 gallons of water. So much so that Shell Oil said the Central Valley could store enough water in restored soil to equal 11 Folsom's. And I'm curious why we're not talking about soil as a sponge so that when we hopefully do get some rain, we can keep it from running. It's out. illegal to use surface water for groundwater recharge. I'm under sorry. Sig it's called, under uh, Sigma, uh, under uh, Sigma uh, they would not allow, I cannot utilize and get as a beneficial use of surface water to recharge groundwater. Uh, 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 okay, I'm not, I'm not even talking about recharging groundwater. Yeah. Sir, I'm talking, sir, do you I'm have talking a question? Yeah, what's the so, question? Do you have so, a question? So the, yeah, the question is, is, is I'm curious why we're not talking about restoring the soil as a mechanism to store the water when it rains because it's a natural way to do that. Well, th this is part of what I talked about at the beginning, the low-impact development ordinance. We looked at trying to capture stormwater in uh, ways that would use the ground to percolate it through. So that was the whole goal behind that. Um, before that, they'd been cleaning the groundwater, I mean, sorry, cleaning the stormwater and just letting it flow out into the ocean. So now we're trying to unpave LA in a way and, and put some soil-based structures in place so that in at least municipal areas, you can do that. Um, I think that in agricultural areas, it's already open areas that you can percolate the groundwater, you know, the stormwater through. You, you but can if the soil is healthy enough. Right. So what you're, what you're talking about is good soil management, and that's valuable for a number of reasons. It's also a carbon sink. So having healthy soils is, is important, and mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of efforts underway for that as well. I, I guess Are the one thing is that we don't have healthy soils. We absolutely have healthy soils. Our soils in California are probably healthier than they've ever been because with the advent of science, we figured out chemical imbalances in the soil um, my, the problem with my ground, if I want to try to flood irrigate, we went to double line drip because of the earthworms that are in the soil. When I used to be able to flood irrigate a 20 acre field in four hours, it now takes about 16 because of what you just said. It's healthy soil. And because of all the earthworm activity, the water goes down. I mean, it, and, and it's a healthy, vibrant soil. And so it, it, it's holding the soil. But I had to go to double, double line drip because I couldn't get the water to go across the field. Okay, so I'm going to... Take my prerogative here to move on. We've got a lot of people who have questions tonight. So I do encourage everyone to please keep your questions as Thank brief you. as possible so we can try to get to people. Thank you. I'm Bill Hughes, the guy that wrote the Clean Air Act. Hmm. Um, I'm wondering what... Is this thing working? <laughs> Whoa, thank you. Uh, gee, what service? Uh, <laughs> uh, We've got uh, we've had these uh, fires. We're going to have more of them before the uh, storms get here. Uh, what is going to be the impact of the tremendous mudslides that we're going to get? How's that going to affect this? Well, one of the immediate effects will be sedimentation in our reservoirs, and that's a huge problem for aqua member agencies that operate up where the fires are happening. I've got one board member that's lost her home up in the valley. Uh, fire. I mean, they're, they're, these fires are devastating. They're very bad. One of the things they do from a water management perspective is they affect, there's a lot of sedimentation in the system. You also tend to get a de deterioration of water quality. But what I want to do is take advantage of, of the question to emphasize how important it is that we start managing those forests better than we have for the last century. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got forests in California today uh, where there are 600 stems per acre instead of 200 stems per acre. A stem is a tree trunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've got tremendous undergrowth built up because we've done fire suppression uh, for 100 years. Uh, and one of the things that Paul was mentioning earlier, I don't think Paul was advocating cutting all the trees down nope. at all. Uh, <laughs> but, I think but, good but management. You, you is, have so is, much, I agree you have that. so much biomass on that forest floor today and so many more trees than a healthy forest would have that they are consuming a lot of water. Right. And if you better manage forests, right. which means treating them, it means thinning mechanically right. with fire uh, to get them to look more like they looked 100 years ago, right. uh, there are, as a secondary benefit, you do get water supply benefits and uh, water quality benefits. But we there, there's actually legislation in Washington, D.C. as we speak uh, that's trying to move in this direction. Whether Washington will overcome its its traditional dysfunction, I don't know. Uh, but my organization is working pretty hard to try and get legislation passed uh, that would allow us to do better management of those forests in the future. It is an important part of our water future. When I say comprehensive, I mean everything from groundwater basins at sea level to better management of those forests above the rim dams. Okay, we have a question here. Good question. Uh, Hi. Uh, I wanted to perhaps circle back to 218 and uh, steeply priced water schemes. Um, Just for my own edification, because I'm a little bit unclear as to the illegal or legality of it, if a water district was initiating a steeply priced water scheme for the purpose of updating infrastructure or either you know modernizing smart meters or just repairing basic pipes, is that illegal under 218? No, and you can raise your water rates uh, to, to finance those things. You have to demonstrate a nexus to the, that, that cost of providing service. Again, Prop, Prop 218 isn't 100% broken. The thing that my membership, the, the two things that are biggest, the biggest concerns to a, a water manager are the fact that certain types of infrastructure are very difficult to, to finance. Stormwater recapture uh, at the top of the list. Uh, the way 218 was written, you have to go through very onerous procedures to deal with stormwater recapture systems. Meanwhile, EPA is regular. The Environmental Protection Agency is really raising the bar to regulate you. So my members that have stormwater issues are caught between a rock and a hard place. They've got regulators saying, fix it. They've got a, a, a legal system that says you've got to get a two-thirds vote from your voters to fix it. That's really hard to do. Uh, the other thing I mentioned earlier that is a problem with Prop 218 is the strict proportionality requirement. This thing that really ties a tight knot between cost of service and, and water molecules flowing to everyone. Where we're in a water world where that you know that works maybe for some things, but not for water in the state of California. For water in the state of California, I have a lot of members who want to use that rate structure as a powerful tool to incentivize using less. Uh, and when you tie it to cost of service, you greatly restrict their ability to do that. And we would like to loosen those constraints. I want to sort of more specifically try to answer your question by saying it depends, <laughs> which is not that specific. But, but here's what I understand to be the consequence of that case that we mentioned is that um, Tim mentioned how Prop 218 works. In that case, they didn't have a proper justification for why it wasn't already within their, their uh, delivery of water service system. So they didn't actually support it well enough. So I think it's going to depend on whether or not it's supported well enough by the district in the, the case of uh, whichever circumstance it is. And that's an open question right now. One court has ruled that it wasn't well supported in that one instance. So it, I wouldn't say it's broadly, but with a broad brush, um, out of bounds. 
Both of you, it seems like the clearest thing I've heard water lawyers say is it show your work. Right. Yes, you have to show your yeah. work. You have to justify That's the thing it. that people say. I mean, the unfortunate consequence of that is I think we need to move to a place where we actually start adding on a fee for research and development. I think there needs to be more research and development dollars in water. There's a lot in energy efficiency, and we haven't put the same inter, um, research and development emphasis on water, and I, we do need to get there. All right. We've got a question here in the front row. I'll hold the mic for you. Uh, yeah, my question is framed by two of the issues that the panel has uh, brought out. I think it was Paul who met, touched on the unfairness of people that have more money being able to buy more water. And the figures I've seen for the agricultural wells that are being dwelled in a, drilled in Central Valley, um, not that many years ago, it was a couple of hundred feet. Now we're talking 3,000. Um, people with money can pay for a 3,000-foot well. People that don't can't farm. That's issue number one. The other one, <clears throat> which I think is extremely serious, is the subsidence is issue. Um, everybody knows that's looked into this at all that there's serious subsidence taking place. It's also been brought out that if this gets bad enough, the California aqueduct could be damaged, undermined, whatever. So here's my question. Why isn't some smart person figuring out the cost of capturing the water in the different ways that you have outlined, balanced against the catastrophic effects of something, in fact, happening to the California aqueduct. Maybe I'll maybe I'll just. T it's a good question, and I think that you know a lot of water utilities and, and agencies are looking at those, you know, capturing water and using it to support, you know, the groundwater, using it for recharge as a really, really important component to how they manage their water system. So in terms of the, the aqueduct, let me set that aside for a second. In, in Southern California, I work with water agencies that are investing a lot in figuring out how do we capture that stormwater and use it to augment what the groundwater basin would otherwise provide. This happens in places where you are managing groundwater, where people are keeping track of how much is going in and coming out and who has the right to pump it. You need those systems in place to incentivize a utility or someone to put water in because they want to make sure they can get it back out. And so I think one of the, the advantages of the, the new law, the Sigma law, is that it's pushing more areas and basins towards the, um, you know, quantifying how the water is used, understanding how you know, it's changing over time and, and incentivizing proper management. And I think when people see it that way, they'll be able to, you know, take action and, ma and make sure that, you know, subsidence is controlled and, you know, damages to infrastructures um, such as the aqueduct and others are, are managed. Thank you so much for all of your questions here tonight. As we wrap up, I did ask this panel to think about one huge policy prescriptive, a future one, something like, get rid of the Endangered Species Act, um, <laughs> that would actually transform how California does things. Tim, two sentences. Lightning round. 
the solutions have to be comprehensive. I'm cheating. Uh, <laughs> the, the fact You've been is, cheating all night. I'm not going to pick the one thing that will solve our problem because there isn't one thing that will solve our problem other than keeping us all mindful that we have to something that is comprehensive. One of the, some of the questioners mentioned that. You've got to stay on that track, think big picture, force your political, uh, your elected officials to think big picture. Don't fall into the trap that there are any magic solutions out there, uh, magic potions that will solve this problem all by themselves. Well, he's right about that, too. Uh, any, and, I, and I think that um, I have both a philosophical and a very specific point. So I mentioned earlier that um, I think it'd be really valuable so that we have a very precise measurement of what we use um, and understand that better. Mm-hmm. So I'll just say narrowly from a prescriptive standpoint, and this isn't a policy thing, but more of a you know what I think we'd, I'd like to get to. Um, and when I say that, I say I'm thinking about it beyond the existing obstacles to do it, because there are ex- existing obstacles to that. But I think if we had very precise measurements of how water is used and for what, um, I think we could be able to manage it better, both in a municipal level, but also throughout all of California, because there's lots of places where water is being used, and we really don't understand how well it's used. The philosophical point that I feel I have to raise is that there is this uh, sense, and, and Paul brought it up earlier, of people thinking of the right to use water as a right somehow in the way that they think of the right to use land. And water is not land. It's not air. We don't feel like we own air, but it's definitely not land. And the concept, really, that w- we need to shift toward, I think, overall, is that um, it's not that we're borrowing it, but the way it's regulated now, it's a license to use because it really belongs to the whole world that water lives in. And if we're using it, we're getting it through a license that we need to manage very carefully. So I, I'd be great if we started shifting more toward accepting that notion as well. Okay. I'll, I'll build off those other two points. And actually, the way I like to think about this is if we're in this room a year from now uh, and this drought was not busted by a Godzilla El Nino and, <laughs> and we're facing you know, the next year, I think that we're going to be talking even more about things like how to facilitate trades, how to fundamentally change where water and how water is used gradually over time. Because I think if you look at the how water is used and, and the values that, that are derived from that water, there's big, huge disparities, and that provides opportunities to um, you know, support more activities, more people, more things, more fish um, with, this, with the amount of water that we have. Yeah, I, I remember the Indira Gandhi when you know here we'd gotten rid of DDT and a lot of the crop protection materials that we had here that were very disruptive to the environment. And somebody challenged Indira Gandhi in India for still utilizing DDT. She said, "When I have seven hundred fifty thousand people a year dying from encephalitis, don't tell me about saving a bird." I would hope that we here in the United States do not allow ourselves to become. And it's become elitism. What we have today was built by the World War II generation, the greatest generation of our time, my parents' generation that came home and built the dams, the infrastructure, the canals that my generation, the baby boom generation, has basically lived on. They didn't have, and they provided so we have, and now we're telling the millennials and others, just get by. You're going to have to conserve. We can come to the table, and if we want to work to co-equal goals and truly be co-equal goals, we can have a vibrant economy. We can have vibrancy in our environment. We can have vibrancy in the future. But we better get rid of our little silos and come together and work. Otherwise, as my generation, we're going to look at future generations, and they're going to look at us with disdain because we did not provide the same future for them that was provided to us. Thank you. Give the round of applause to these panelists.
So speaking of Australia, Rand's newest office is in Australia. <laughs> I, was, I was there a couple of weeks back and they are some of the friendliest people on the planet. So I'm thinking the more our farmers interact with them, they're going to get along. Uh, but uh, please join me in thanking again our panel for the stimulating uh, discussion. This presentation is provided as a public service by the Rand Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.